0: And in this evening we begin a study in the book of Exodus. Uh, it has 40 chapters in it, and as I've gone through it, I've discovered that it's 40 chapters of life-changing truths. The book of Exodus. We get our English word Exodus from a Latin version of the Bible called the Vulgate. And the word Exodus, it means going out. We even get our English word exit from it. And that's when we leave the building, when we go out. And uh, that's really what we'll see as we go through these 40 chapters. It's uh, God calling His people out of the world, out of slavery. God calling His people out of a life even of sin and into a life of freedom and into a life that leads us to what He calls the promised Land. And as we go through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that message, um, God calling us out. But one of the things that I think that we'll see as we study it together is an emphasis really not on the people that God calls out, but on the God who calls His people out, that He is the Redeemer. And He has the power to call us out of the world. He has a power that is dedicated to His people. It's an absolute power over the world and is something that I think that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, don't really take to heart in their life. We're going to see that in going through the book of Exodus, even tonight, discovering that without God, um, there's no hope. We'll see tonight as we go through the book of Exodus chapter 1 that God has a plan that no one can stop. And we'll see in Exodus chapter 2 that God has a man that no one can stop. And the plan is a universal plan, and the man is a personal man. And really, as we get through the chapter, we'll see that there is one exception. The only one that can stop Moses is Moses, but God is behind him. And it's a good thing for us to know as we go through our life, you know, because a lot of times I think, unfortunately, we get our eyes off the Lord. We don't realize how great He is, and we lose sight of His... Big plan, and we lose sight of even the fact that God works on man. Isn't it so amazing, you guys, to know that God is a God who has the universe in His hands, and He keeps the stars in place and the galaxies where they belong? Doesn't that blow you away? That God has this amazingly big power that He's able to do all that? But doesn't it also amaze you to think that God is a personal God? And that he's individually working on our lives personally. And which one is more amazing? I don't know. But we'll kind of look at both of them tonight. Now when you look at the book of Exodus, we know that the human writer is Moses, who also wrote the first five books of the Bible. And really the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, the first word in the book of Exodus is the word and. And that really speaks of the fact that this is a continuation of the first book, the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, the book, the book that we saw, the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of sin, the beginning of nations, and the beginning of the Jews. And we saw in Genesis chapter 11 that God raised up Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, to whom he gave certain promises – And one promise in particular is that God would multiply the people and they would occupy the land there in the Middle East. And eventually, that through the nation of Israel, God would raise up a Savior who would be a blessing to the whole world. And as we go through this, we'll see that this is really a continuation of the big plan of salvation that God has for the world. And it's a really important part, the book of Exodus, and I'm really praying that we as a church, that me as an individual, will allow God to take these truths and really plant them deep in our hearts. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that we're here studying a book that teaches us a couple of things. Number one, it teaches us about growth. And number two, and the thing that I'm really excited about, is that it teaches us about freedom. And how we need growth in our life, how we need that freedom in our life. And that's the supernatural ability, you guys, think about it, to overcome the bondage and slavery of the world and of sin. And how we need to groan like the children of Israel did and cry out for the great Redeemer to come and to set us free because we live in a world that unfortunately is very swift and able even to take even God's children and to bring us under bondage. You know, we really need to come and to pray and to seek the Lord. Whether you're here tonight as a non-believer, a new believer, or even an old believer, I think that these principles still apply. And I've noticed in looking at myself and looking at the church that, as we'll see, Egypt, a type of the world is still around and it's bigger than ever. I've noticed that a lot of Christians still live in Egypt. And there they are, God's people, blending in with the world. They're trying to please the king of Egypt, and they're trying to please the king of kings, and God said, you can't do it. It's impossible. No one can have two masters. And so as we look at the book of Exodus, I pray that we would look up and realize that there is a Redeemer who wants to set us free from a life of compromise, from a life of having one foot in the world, and one foot in the church. You know, if you think about it, if you're living in Egypt, you're, I think, really getting whipped in Egypt. (laughs) I think you're getting gypped in Egypt. Why is that? Well, it's because God has so much more for us, you guys, and we really need to know this. We really need to know that there is a promised land out there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land out there. It's a land in here. And it's a joy for the journey. It's peace, even in the pain. It's freedom and fellowship. It's love for a lifetime. And I think that as we reach for our Redeemer, just like Job who knew his Redeemer was alive, then God will do a great work, exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. You know, like it says in Jeremiah 33, verse 3, the Lord said this, Call to me. And I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That's what we see really going on now. The people of God are in Egypt. They're in the world. And God's going to bring them to a point where they finally surrender and they cry and they groan and they pray like they're supposed to pray. And then it says that God remembered them and God raised up a deliverer. Let's begin first of all looking at God's plan in verse 1 it says now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt each man and his household came with Jacob Reuben Simeon Levi and Judah Issachar Zebulun and Benjamin Dan Naphtali Gad and Asher all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. for Joseph was in Egypt already and Joseph died all his brothers and all that generation But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. First we see God's plan, then we'll see God's ban. Here we see the children of Israel, the first time that that phrase is used in the Bible. They started with 70, and the plan of God was simple. He was to multiply The people. That was God's universal plan. That was God's national plan. That was God's plan. He told Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. He told Abraham in Genesis 15:5, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. He told Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. He told Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 15, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And that was the plan of God. And that was the promise of God. And even though it took some time, we will see that there was no one who could stop it. We see now that the time is drawing near. And as you look at verse 7, it's kind of interesting. There's five words that are used here to emphasize the fact that there was a population explosion going on within the nation of Israel, within the land of Gershom where they were at. It says that children of Israel were fruitful, they increased abundantly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly, and the land was filled with them. And so, as the Lord promises, He keeps His promise. As the Lord plans, He will follow through. But as the Lord multiplies, as the people grow we'll see now that the enemy doesn't sleep. And look what he does in verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. As you study the history of the nation of Egypt, we believe that uh, prior to this, that there was the 17th dynasty there in Egypt, and they were a Semitic people. They would probably be compassionate to the Jews. But then there arose a dynasty there in Egypt. They were the 18th dynasty, and they were purely Egyptian. And scholars believe that it is at this time that they arose, these kings arose, and they didn't know the work of Joseph, and they came, and they came against the children of Israel. And when you look at it, it's interesting in verse 10, I believe they were motivated by Satan because their, object, their objectives deal specifically with what God wanted to do in their nation. In verse 10, it says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that what God wants to do with them? Well, the enemy knew that. And here he comes and he focuses specifically on God's plan. And then, ultimately, their objective was not to allow, it says right there in the end of verse 10, For the nation of Israel to go up out of the land. And when you look at the promises that God had given to the Jews, they were really threefold. Number one, the people. Number two, the land. Number three, the Messiah. Through the Jews. And as we go through the story right here, we'll see that the enemy working through this 18th dynasty specifically focused on the objectives and purposes that God had for the nation of Israel. Number one, he wanted to remove them or um, put this barrier between them multiplying. Number two, he didn't want them to go into the land. And number three, we'll see later, what he wanted to do was to kill all the boys so that the girls would survive, so that they could blend in with the Egyptians, so that the Messiah would not come through the nation of Israel. And that was their focus. That was their objective specifically to undermine the very plan of God. And here we see really the beginning of what's known as anti-Semitism in which the enemy has tried over the ages to destroy the Jews. That's why so many people hate the Jews because the enemy is behind it. But as we'll go through the chapter and as we've gone through history, we see that they won't prevail over the Jews. The enemy will never destroy the Jews. Why is that? Is it because the Jews are so great? No, it's because God has a plan. And that's really, I think, the overriding message of chapter 1 in the book of Exodus, that God has a plan, and no one can stop it. No one can stop it. They begin, first of all, coming against them through affliction and we read in verse 11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Verse 11 says they set taskmasters over them. And what that means, you guys, is at this point, when the enemy comes in, he basically says that that this point, Egypt makes Israel slaves. That's what happened. If you have a New Living Translation, it specifically says that. That at this point, they made them their slaves. And as they're there and they afflict them with these burdens, it says right there that they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. And modern day excavations of these cities show storehouses, buildings made of bricks. Bricks that were about a foot long and about six inches high. And they just had all these buildings of storehouses that the Egyptians forced the Israelites to build. And even monuments in ancient Egypt confirmed the fact that these public works of Egypt were built by forced labor. And the reason they did that, well, some people say it was simply because to make Egypt great and grand, and I don't know if that's true or not, Because a lot of people believe that there was a philosophy behind the great buildings of Egypt, and that was this to take the heart out of the people, to take the heart out of the slaves. The philosophy was not simply for the glory of Egypt, but the writings of Egypt tell us that it was primarily a desire to oppress the people and to crush the spirits of the people, to take away their heart, to take away their courage and to take away their identity as God had a plan for their life. You know, when you read this, it's an amazing thing that God had this plan, and and you look at this, and you wonder, then why did he allow them to be slaves? Well, remember, you guys, that if God has a plan, no one can stop that plan. And I love what it says in verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And that right there is, I think, a great verse for us to memorize as we go through the afflictions of life, as we go through the trials and all the opposition, and even when the enemy gets specific and he says, hey, I know what God has planned for you, and that will be my focus from this point on. Understand that even through the afflictions, God will have his way. And there's opportunity for growth. There's opportunity for multiplication. And as a side note, I think we should really take this to heart because unfortunately, I think that we as Christians, we usually strive for an absence of afflictions. We don't want trials in our life. When even the New Testament revelation tells us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, endurance, which is what we'll need to go the long haul. See, we need to really have this in our heart that even though the enemy may afflict us, God has a bigger plan. And in those trials that we experience in life, God is giving us what we need to finish the race with joy. How important that is and how we need to make sure that we take that to heart. You know, a lot of times we complain and, you know, we ask God, well, what seems to be the problem? And the Lord says, my son, my daughter, remember, I have a plan and no one can stop it. And so we shouldn't be afraid of trials. We shouldn't cringe from trials. We should only be afraid of sin. We should only be afraid of God and nothing else. Unfortunately, what we do so many times is we take the trial and we take our eyes off God. And then what we end up doing is transforming this trial into temptation. And then in that temptation, we sin against God. And we hurt Him. And we hurt ourselves. And we hurt everybody around us. See, God wants us really as Christians to know the power that He has. I think that as we go through Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, man, I pray we would walk out the doors today understanding how great our God is and how big the Redeemer is. We'll see later that God's going to raise up a man named Moses. And most of you are probably familiar with him. He's one of the greatest men of all time, right? But Moses would have sunk in the Nile River and he would have rotted in the wilderness if it wasn't for God. So the question is, who's really great? God is great, right? And we really need to know that, especially when we're going through the trials. We need to know that our God is able to take those trials and like it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and make them for our good. You know, I know it takes discipline in our life, but please remember, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The other day I came in, to the building and it was on a Monday, and I usually don't come in on Mondays, but um, this Monday I did because God knew what was going on. I guess Sunday night there was an overflow in the bathroom, and all this water damage came in. And you know, I know you guys probably familiar with some of the water damage we've had in the past, and it it's gone out a few feet from the walls, but this time, man, it just came all the way up to the chairs, and I I literally sloshed into the building. And I was just like, oh, man. And the first thing that came into my mind was this. It's never been this bad before. And it's never gone this far. And then the Lord really ministered to me. Manny, nothing's a coincidence. And I want to show you something. I want to tell you something. The enemy's coming in like a flood. And it's never been this bad before. And it's never gone this far before. And I'll be honest with you. I've experienced that. I'm sure many of you have as well. But even though the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord told me in Isaiah 59 verse 19 that he would set up a standard against him. That the Lord would just literally, by the Spirit of God, by the breath of God, he would, I I know this sounds kind of modern, but he would blow him away. You see, God has a plan. And no one can stop it. And if we believe that, then God will move in our life and you want to know what's gonna happen? We will actually have the privilege to be a part of that plan. And that's a choice that we have to make, whether or not we're going to believe God. So the enemy's here, you know, and he comes in, and one of the things the Lord's been ministering to me is, Manny, he's not gonna go away. And I keep telling asking the Lord, well, wouldn't it be cool like if he went away and the Lord says he's not gonna go away? And I, you know, start running the race, and sometimes I think I'm gaining ground. And I'm, you know, picking up speed and I look to the side of me and there he is. He's still there keeping pace, but it's okay because even though the enemy may be there and even though he brings in the affliction, God allows him to do that. The Lord will use that for good. The enemy doesn't give up. Look what happens next in verse 15. We move from the affliction. Now to the administration, because the enemy is very organized, and we read in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah, and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. God has a plan. The enemy knows that. And so he comes specifically against God's plan. He tries affliction. Maybe that won't work. Next he gets real organized, and I just called it administration because I know how organized the enemy is. Uh, The nation of Egypt, they say, was one of the most organized countries in all the world. They were uh, just extraordinarily organized. Now these two women right here were probably... The overseers of all the midwives who were trained women in helping the delivery of the children they were there, the midwives, kind of like a nurse, you know when a, a a woman gives birth they were their responsibility was to cut the umbilical cord and then they were there bathing the baby, rubbing it with salt, wrapping them in cloth. that was their duty as a midwife and so when the general afflictions couldn't defeat the plan, the king of Egypt now comes with his administrative and organizational opposition in order that he might defeat the plan of God. His attempt was there. The king of Egypt attempted to deceive people who were close to the children of Israel. You know, if he was able to kill the boys and eventually the Egyptian men would take the Jewish women as wives and they would lose their identity and God's plan would be Destroyed, And that was their plan. But I love what the midwives did. It says in verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. See, God has a plan. The enemy knows that and so he opposes God's plan specifically he first of all tries the affliction that doesn't necessarily work as a matter of fact they multiplied and grew. Now he tries the administrative ways, the organizational ways. In this case it's kind of like he takes a person and he plants them in the church and they're really a wolf. These were people that were close to the Israelites. I mean these were the ones that would be there when the babies were, you know, going to be born. And really, when you read this, I think that what was going to happen was this, that it was going to be a deceptive plan. Like, here you are, you're giving birth, and uh, the baby's born, right? And if it's a boy, the king of Egypt's philosophy was this. If it's a boy, kill it. And then you'll tell the ladies, I'm sorry, he he didn't live. See, that was his mentality. It was a deception. And we see that as God you know, wants to do this work, the enemy is very organized in knowing where to focus his energy. And a lot of times we see that happen and he's very effective. When he tries first of all to persecute the church from the outside, he finds that it continues to grow. And so what does he do now? He comes into the church and he tries to cause chaos in that way. But as we'll see... God's plan will not be defeated. See, we need to have eyes. We need to be, you know, wise. But we see that there's no way that God's plan would be defeated. There's no way. Even though the enemy tried the affliction and he tried to come in, God's plan would survive. And I love the way it happens because it's an amazing thing to me the way the Lord is able to use even the, you know, the volitional will of man to accomplish His will. It's not that He forced the midwives into anything. They feared God, it says in verse 17. They feared God, it says in verse 21. And as we see them fearing God, then we see the Lord doing that work. Here the midwives were supposedly there to help and the plan was you know, to kill the boys, but they feared God and therefore they didn't succumb to the plan of the enemy. And here's another side note as we go through the chapter here, understanding the overarching message is the greatness of God, and no one can defeat Him, no one, no, no one. But even here we also have a side note lesson on the importance of fearing God. You know, nowadays we foolishly boast that we have no fear when the Bible so fundamentally teaches us that we should fear God the Bible says in Proverbs 9 verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 it says therefore having these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God you know i think there's not a lot of fear of God in the hearts of his children. And I think that it would be good for us to really cultivate a healthy fear of God. Otherwise, you might find yourself in the middle of the church being deceived by the enemy to cause chaos in the church. That's how cunning the devil is. And unless there is a healthy fear, of God in our life, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of the battle. How we need to fear God. You know, I've been going through the prophets, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, and I see the hand of God. I see the justice of God. I see the way judgment is coming, and I see how judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Last night I was talking to the young adults, and one of the things that we were talking about is how there's all these gray areas in, in we, we think they're gray areas in Christianity. And unfortunately, what I've seen is most Christians like to live, they're content to live in the gray areas. Well, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I'll go ahead and stay here, anyways. Why in the world? Would anyone have such a heart? If you don't know whether it's right or wrong, flee to the right. How we need to make sure that we have a healthy fear of God. You know, first of all, if we don't have a healthy fear of God, He's not going to use us. He's not going to anoint us. And if it gets worse, you know, then He may discipline us. Next thing you know, we're on the shelf. I love what we see in the heart of these midwives because the command came not from, you know, this, you know, mayor. He's the the president. He was the pharaoh. He was the king of Egypt. And now they had to make a choice. Who do I fear? Do I fear man who is able to destroy my body or do I fear God? They ended up fearing God. And I really pray that you and I would fear God. That we really would fear God. You know, I think that what the Lord is telling me anyways is, Manny, this is the days that you're living in. It's time to repent. It's time to pray. And it's time to believe with all your heart. Seriously, man, no more playing games. These are the things I think God is ministering to us. And, you know, as we find this fear of God, there will be a joy in our life. As we cultivate a fear of God that, oh, I don't want to sin against Him. I don't want to sin, no, not one time. I don't even want to play with sin or chance with sin. I don't want to see how close to the edge I can get. I want to just stay right with God and fill my eyes with things that are pure and my ears, my life with things that are right, then we'll be blessed because God is so good. And here we see the midwives were blessed. It says right there that they were blessed in verse 21 with, with families. More than likely what was going on was this, you guys, that the midwives were chosen because they didn't have a family. And maybe there was a mentality that they never would have a family but because they feared god in the time and the day of testing then god gave them what they would have never even otherwise have dreamed of and that's how amazing the fear of god is and that's what a beautiful thing can happen and we see the midwives there in that and a lot of people like to grapple with well if they feared god so much and it, you know did they lie to pharaoh and You know, is lying okay sometimes? And, you know, people start getting into this theological debate. Well, I just want to share with you that lying is a sin. And, you know, lying is from the devil. Please don't ever justify lying, you know. And as we look at this, and if you ever find yourself in, you know, a position where maybe you're hiding Jews from Adolf Hitler, or maybe you're hiding spies, you know, that are going to come in and conquer the land of Jericho. Or maybe you're, you know, here and you're, you know, torn between Pharaoh and God. You know, that's between you and the Lord. And if you feel like lying, that's between you and the Lord. I've had people really get upset with me. One time I did a study on lying. It was all about lying, how ugly lying is. And afterwards they were mad. They said, I can't believe you did a whole study on lying. And I just had to say, because lying is an abomination to God. And we shouldn't try to look at this and say, hey, there's a loophole here. (laughs) We should say, no, the midwives feared God. God has a plan. The enemy will come against the plan through affliction. The enemy will come against the plan through administration. And here's the last A, triple A. The enemy will come against the plan Through all. And that's what we see in verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. At this point, what happened was this, you guys. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, told all his people, all the Egyptians, he said, If you ever see a little boy that's born, you have the right now to throw him into the water. And basically, the overarching message there in chapter 1 is that God has a plan and the enemy has a counter plan. But understand, as we go through the story here, that God's plan, his universal plan, will not be defeated. You know, it's interesting because in this plan, because of the enemy's shrewdness in verse 10, because of his plan... God would then take this little baby, Moses, and a little ark, and then put him in the river, send him down to the Egyptian house. There he would be trained in the wisdom of the Egyptian. He would be raised up as a deliverer for the nation of Israel. In the devil's plan, God would turn it around and use it for his glory. And that's the amazing thing we see about God. He is so strong. He is so wise. He is the one that we really need to pray to and to worship. I like what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In chapter 2, we see not God's plan, but more God's man. Don't you like the way it rhymes in this? It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the side, And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the, from the Hebrew woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And so she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. In essence, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 give us that history of Moses. And kind of, in a sense, we'll see in verse 11 that this first part consists of the first 40 years in the life of Moses. Here we see God doing a work. We begin by looking, first of all, at verses 1 through 10 when Moses is born. And it's interesting You know, when his parents got married, they were both Levites. And when she conceived, it says in verse 2 that she saw that he was a beautiful child. Now, most people, when they see their children born, they would probably say the same thing, right? A beautiful, healthy baby boy, a beautiful little girl. But there was something special about Moses. There really was. If you have an NIV in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 20, it says, At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Now how did Amram and Jochebed, how did they know that Moses was special? How did they know that he was no ordinary child? How were they able to see the beauty that went beyond the skin? Well, I think it's because they were in tune with God. I think it's because they had the heavenly perspective. I think it's because they saw things the way God sees things. And when we see things through God's eyes, if we're willing to surrender to his presentation of what's going on in our world, then I believe then we'll have opportunities to exercise faith that will bring glory to him like no other way. That's what we see happen if you read over in the book of Hebrews Chapter 11, we'll turn there later, but right now I'll just read to you verse 23. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. How were they able to see that he was special? How were they able to muster up the courage to hide him for three months? How were they able to then, you know, put him in the river knowing that there was something special for this little boy. There's only one way. They were seeing things God sees things. They were seeing things through the eyes of faith. What is faith? Well, faith is looking at life through the perspective that God provides, through the truths that He teaches, having an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And as we see Amram and Jacob, there they are, God has a calling on this little boy's life and and they see it. And they participate in the calling of their son. And that's really what we see happen with, you know. How do you make a three-month little boy look special? How do you make an infant look special? You know, did he have like purple eyes or, you know, was his hair like a different color? I mean, what was it about him? Well, I know this, that he had anointing on his life. And just as you and I have an anointing on our life. It's an anointing according to Second Timothy one nine that was given to us before we were born, before time began. Just like Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, it says that before he was formed in the womb, God knew him. Before he was born, God had already sanctified him and ordained him, he'd already laid hands on him as a prophet to the nations. See, even before we're born, you guys, God has a plan. God has a man. God has a woman. God has a purpose for our life. Here's the question. When you look at this, was it really only the parents of Moses? No, the whole thing was God. God was doing a work. And this evening, as we look at this, that's where the glory is directed. God has a plan, universal, and no one can stop it. And God has a plan, personal, a responsibility, a task given to us before time began. But in order to accomplish this task now that's personal, that man, that woman, I believe that the ingredients that are necessary is those ingredients found in Hebrews chapter 11 called faith. Daily faith, a determined faith, a genuine faith. Last night we were talking again with the youth, and I was just telling them, you know, what is it that keeps us from praying the way we should pray sometimes? And you know, and there is the element of laziness. There is the element of lack of discipline. There is an element of distractions in our life. But I be, I'll be honest with you, I think the root of all prayerlessness in the church is unbelief. Because if we really believed all these promises of God in the Bible, and if we believed that not only does He keep the stars in their place, but He has the power to actually bless your life beyond what you could ever imagine, and the only thing between you and those promises are prayer, then we would be praying if we really believed. But we don't believe. Sometimes And so we don't pray. And so what happens? We're not people of faith. And so what happens? Even though God will get His work done, and one day in heaven there won't be one missing, you and I miss out on the greatest privilege of life, and that is being used by Him to the uttermost. You see, God is doing a work, and God is raising up men and women. And you may not be Moses. Maybe you'll be an Amram or Jochebed. Maybe you'll be a couple, maybe you'll be a friend, maybe you'll be there somehow, some way, but when you see things the way God wants you to see things, then you will notice the things that you need to stand on and the, where the faith needs to be exercised. And even though it may seem illogical and it may seem dangerous and it may not make sense to other people, you will take your little Moses and you will you know, make this little ark and you'll cover it with pitch and there... You'll put it in the river, and you'll send your daughter to go and to watch. And lo and behold, it it floats down the river, and the alligators miss it, you know. And the hippopotamuses don't eat it. And next thing you know, down comes Pharaoh's daughter, and she's you know happens to be there at that time. And then she picks him up. And what happens? Moses starts crying. Well, does that guarantee he's going to be saved? No. Pharaoh's daughter has compassion. She hears the cry, and then what does she do? Oh, it's just crazy. It's crazy what happened. The little girl comes and says, "Hey, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse him?" "Oh yeah, that sounds good." So she goes and she gets her mom and then her mom comes and she gets paid for nursing her little boy. It just is logical, it doesn't make any sense. But it was God's amazing plan. That was exercising that was uh, made possible by people who exercised faith. You know, if you can explain how this happened, and chances are God didn't do it. How we just need to really exercise faith and pray and seek the Lord and watch God do a great work. You know, when Moses' mom then took him we don't know for sure exactly how long she had him, but some people believe it was probably around three years old and until she weaned him probably. We don't know for sure. But I guarantee you that when she had him, she was whispering into his ear like the Jews would, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And just sharing, pouring into him, even at a young age like an infant, all the love of God and what God was going to do. And I know... That it made a difference in his life. Because even though he was raised in the house of Pharaoh, we'll read later in the book of Hebrews, we'll read in the book of Acts, that Moses didn't want to be called the son of Pharaoh. We see now in verse 11 what happens. It says, Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren. And looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that me he may eat bread. And then Moses was content to live with the man and gave Zipporah His daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. There's so much here. Um, You read the book of Acts chapter 7, and you read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. There's so much here that took place in this time frame. You read the writings of Josephus. Historians tell us, and we don't know for sure if this is true, that Moses actually was a man who was raised in the Egyptian house and became a great leader in the Egyptian army. And that he led them to numbers of victories in the Egyptian army. And that he was offered the throne of Egypt at least two times. Now we don't know for sure whether or not that's true, but we do know this over in the book of Hebrews, that Moses passed all this up. He refused all of the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Because he esteemed the riches of Christ. And as he did that, one day he went out to the field and he saw the Hebrews. He saw, it says right there, his brethren. He knew they were his brethren. And he saw one getting beaten up by an Egyptian. And when you read the accounts all together, I think that Moses acted in defense. That more than likely, this Egyptian was going to kill the Hebrew slave. And so what does Moses do? Well, he comes in and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Uh, We know that he knew it was wrong because he looked this way and that way and then he buried him. But you begin to see what's going on in the heart of Moses. What ends up happening then? Well, the next day he comes out and Moses sees two Hebrew men fighting. And you know he had this in his heart god was beginning to place a burden inside of them that somehow some way he didn't know the details yet but somehow some way he had this this burden that god was going to use them in such an amazing way use him to set the hebrews free and so he sees them fighting and he has a heart for them and he says why are you guys fighting and then they come back like they Unfortunately, it did. We'll see in Acts chapter 7, always resisting the Holy Spirit. And they said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill us like you did the Egyptian? They resisted the deliverer, right? And so what happens? Moses then flees. And for 40 years, he goes and he's content to live as a shepherd who according to the book of Genesis, is despised by Egyptians. And there's a lot of things in here, but what we see is two things. Number one, God's perfect timing is, is the issue. And it wasn't time yet. There were still 40 years left. Number two is preparation in the heart of Moses, in the heart of the people. Perfect timing, preparation, Transformation, you know, if you want to look at it really what happened here. You know what had happened? Well, according to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, the Lord had prophesied to Abraham that his descendants would go into Egypt and they would be slaves for 430 years. But then when the sin of the Amorites was full, then God would come in and he would conquer the land. Well, it wasn't full yet, the timing wasn't right yet, as far as the sin of the Amorites go. Not only that, the people had to be willing to be led. And if you read Acts chapter 7, verse 25, we see that the people weren't ready yet, they weren't willing yet. The sin of the Amorites wasn't ready, the people weren't ready, and neither was Moses really ready. You know, a lot of people look at this and some think, well, Moses, you know, stepped out in the flesh and maybe he had some pride and then God had to take him and and humble him in the wilderness. And that definitely is a possibility. I do know this, that by the time God was done with Moses, the Bible tells us that he's the meekest man on the earth. You know, and... As you guys know, and I'm sure that you've heard many times, I've seen it so many times, the number one thing, I think, that gets in the way of us really being used by God is pride. And it breaks my heart to see people with so much potential filled with pride. And then God can't use them the way he wants to use them. And so sometimes I'll think to myself, well, Manny, that's you. (laughs) That's others. And so what can you do about this, Manny? Maybe you can help them and humble them. And, And then the Lord tells me, you know what? You can't humble them. But God will humble them. Just like God humbled Moses. It took him 40 years, but he humbled him in order that he might use him. Moses had to be prepared. By the time it was all said and done, we'll see next week, that uh, when the Lord appeared to Moses, (laughs) Moses said, No way, Jose. (laughs) You got the wrong man. I can't speak. There's just not a chance. And then God says, Okay, now you're ready. A lot of times what I see happen in the ministry is, you know, people say i'm the one i'm the one i'm the one and then that's why god says so you're not the one and it's not until we can say you be the one you be the one i'm willing to let you be the one and then god says okay now you're ready that has to be in our hearts that humility it really does And as God wants to do that work, I think that as a church, God is going to teach us how great He is. Because it takes a lot of faith to do that. But Lord, I feel called to do this. And I feel like, you know, Lord, you're going to use me. Then the Lord says, okay, well, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Do you believe that verse? Okay, if you believe that verse, then take a step of faith. Humble yourself. And then you watch my word come true. I think that we as a church, I think we as a church here in Almani, we really need to pray. I think that we're struggling with Egypt. I really do. I think that I have struggled with Egypt. That I have struggled with myself. And I think that God is now just bringing me to a point of groaning and crying just groaning and crying. And if I'd be willing to now groan and cry, then I think God will send down power from on high. And we'll see him do a work that, man, will blow our minds. The children of Israel did. Look at verse 23. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God. Because of the bondage. So God, notice this, I like this. He heard their groaning. I like that. (laughs) He heard their groaning. And when I think of groaning, you guys, I think of sincerity. Do you really, are you really interested in freedom? Are you really interested in freedom? Or, Manny, are you interested in your kingdom? I'm going to build my little kingdom. No, it's not about that. Here's what it's about. It's about me being free to simply serve the Lord. Just to serve the Lord. Only Him. No more idols, no more kingdoms, nothing comes before God anymore. And once I reach that point in which He is everything I want and with Him alone I am satisfied in life and I will just obey Him, I will repent, I will pray, I will believe, then what's what's going to happen next, you guys? Exodus chapter 3. You know, lately it's been cold, and every day it's been cool in this sense, man. I've been waking up, and I've been lighting a fire in the house. And it's just been so awesome. I don't know, I never used to do this before. Did you guys ever do this? I always thought that fires were supposed to be lit at night. I don't know. You're probably thinking, dude, you're, you're just slow. But I thought this was a novel idea, and i started lighting the fires in the morning and there i am and the fire the darkness behind me my bible in front of me and just starting praying lord do a new work do a new work in my life do a pure work father light a fire like i see right there light a fire inside of me that the world cannot quench father I just pray that you would not allow me to be satisfied with anything less than the fullness of God alone. Not family, not ministry, not any kingdom of my own or anything I can fathom. Just God. And as I was there, I just felt like, you know, a new new freedom. And I think this is where God wants us to be now, to be ready, man, to, to take off our sandals like we'll see next week and to hear the Lord say, hey, now you're where you belong. Now you're standing on holy ground. I pray, you guys, that we would fear God, that we would hate sin, that we would seriously flee from all the gray areas in this world and that we would live sold out to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, I pray that we would know that our Redeemer has a plan and He has the man, the, the woman, and no one can stop this great work of God. You guys do that? Cross your heart. Hope to die. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you so much, Father, for your love and your grace. And Father, so much here, Lord, in your word. I, I just see how, Father, it's so deep that theologians will never touch the bottom. We skim the surface and we're floored. Lord, I just ask that we would know that There is a God uh, who is our Redeemer, who is our Master, and who is calling us, Father, into a deeper relationship, Father. I just ask, Lord, that today, wherever your people are, Lord, wherever we are today, that, Lord, today, we would really make some changes, that we'd make some adjustments. Lord, that we would take steps of faith in the right direction, having a heavenly perspective that you provide even tonight. Lord, help us not to grow hard. Help us not to get calloused. Help us not to walk away and refuse to change. Lord, I just ask that tonight you would bless your people with just the wonderful truth that the same God who holds the stars in their place also has his hand on our life, that you even ordained us before we were born. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know how great you are. And I thank you so much for every person here, Lord. And I ask that if there is anyone here today